This practice that we are engaged in is something that offers remarkable possibilities. The potential of this practice, when we really take it into our hearts and into our lives, is to really allow us to discover a depth of freedom and a degree of compassion that transforms our experience of what it means to be alive. This practice that we're engaged in is not just for our own welfare or well-being, but something that serves ultimately the welfare of all of life when we truly understand it. And this evening I'd like to speak about the uh, fruition of practice, the fruit, we could say. And I'd like to use as a template, a, a framework for this, the words of a great and much-loved teacher, a Tibetan teacher and practitioner, Kalu Rinpoche. And he once observed, he said, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will realize that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Remarkable words. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. So much of what we're doing as we practice is allowing ourselves to begin to see more deeply into the truth of our experience, to see how we live in appearances much of the time, the way in which we pay attention in an ordinary life and with an untrained and uncultivated mind, the attention we give tends to be fleeting, tends to be brief. We tend to form conclusions really quickly. And as a result, we don't necessarily see the truth of things. So in paying attention more carefully and steadying and stabilizing our mind through the practice of meditation, of connecting with our immediate experience again and again, we start to see more clearly, more directly, more fully the truth of our experience. In terms of what it is that we live in the illusion of, 
in terms of Dharma teachings, the appearance which we feel or experience as most compelling and most difficult to really see through is the appearance of separateness, the sense that we ourselves exist apart from, removed, disconnected, or separate from others and everything around us. And that likewise those things that we observe or experience around us, whether things or beings or people, are equally separate, discrete, independent, self-existent entities or units. The effect of this perception, this misunderstanding essentially, although it appears to be what is so, the effect of living in this way of seeing is a sense of isolation, a sense of disconnection, a profound loss of meaningfulness in life. And in short, suffering, dukkha. When we feel and believe and imagine ourselves to be separate, to be a particularity separated and distinct from all others, we are basically lost in the realm of birth and death. This is the effect of believing the appearance of separation. When we create or establish a sense of independent self-existence, when we come, and as we come, and we do inevitably, until we have opportunity to question it, come to believe this to be so, it's through a process of identifying with the experiences and the story of our life. And we've spoken some about this over the days, the way in which we grasp hold of what's going on and use it as a way of reflecting back to ourselves a picture or an image of what we believe to be ourselves, who we are. And what happens when we take hold of such things, experiences, the events of our life, the feelings we encounter, the whole flow of what passes through our consciousness. When we take hold of that as what we are, we're taking hold of things that arise and pass. As Miocian was speaking very beautifully to last night, that sense of Everything arises and passes. When we take hold of things that arise and pass to, and believe them to be who we are, we become bound to the world of birth and death. We live in fear because that which we have imagined ourselves to be, having come into being, is inevitably bound to come to an end of its existence. This body-mind process that we take and believe, and it seems quite compelling and 
perhaps even ludicrously obvious that this, we imagine, is who we are. And yet, when we hold to that position, we cannot help but live in fear. Because at the end of this journey, it comes to an end. If that's, I think the word is a tautology, at the end of the journey, it comes to an end. And there's no way out of that, it seems. And to me, a useful image to reflect on this is like a wave on the ocean. You could just imagine a wave popping up on the ocean surface somewhere out there in the middle of the, well, we say Atlantic since it's the closest one to here. And uh, the wave just moving along, heading towards the horizon, it seems. And it's probably having quite a good time. There's other waves out there doing much the same thing. You know, there's the birds and the wind, and it's kind of probably quite content. If it should happen to be contemplating its experience, its existence, it would think, well, this is all right. <laughs> and then at some point, over in the far distance, it notices something going on. It's not quite sure. It's, it's, it's heading in that direction. It gets a little closer, and it's the shoreline. And you see these waves hitting the shore. You realize what's happening. You start to get, wow, those waves, they hit the shore. They are destroyed. It's like crashing into the shore. And the wave just, you know, it's kind of heading along. And it probably starts thinking something like, um, well, I'm not sure about this, you know. <laughs> Do I want to keep going in this direction? And like, you know, where's the reverse gear on this thing? But it hasn't got one. It just keeps going forward. And you could imagine the wave getting real, you know, if one sort of empathized with a wave, <laughs> getting really worried because all its companions, everything it sees in front of it is crashing onto the shoreline and being destroyed. And sure enough, inevitably, inexorably, unstoppably, the wave crashes onto the shoreline. And it seems it disappears. But what happens to the water? What happens to the water that was traveling along in this particular shape when it hits the shoreline? Is the water affected or harmed by the process? When we take hold of the surface appearance of things, we are bound to suffering. Taking hold of appearance is birth, and it leads inevitably to the dissolution of that which we've taken hold of. And in that, if we're still holding on, that's what we call death. But when the wave hits the shore, while the wave is no more, the water, the, the nature of what the wave is, is unaffected. A wave is just energy moving through water, giving it a particular form and shape. And the water, having been a wave in the ocean, having been water in a particular shape in the ocean, after it crashes onto the shore, it's still in the ocean. It takes a little while to dribble back down over the sand, I guess. 
but fundamentally it is unharmed. What we experience as sights, sounds, smell, taste, touch, and thought processes, which take the form of concepts and images registering, registering in, our, in our minds, this is what we know. This is what we call experience. This is what the sensory equipment that we are provided with registers. And what we can notice is that the things, and we pay attention in order to notice, the things that we register, the things that we are sensitive to through our sense organs and through our mind are things that keep changing. Sounds change, smells change. Sights change, thoughts change, fortunately. Um, and yet, there's something interesting about this because in that being all that we can experience, there's something about the nature of the way our sensory equipment is set up that is worth reflecting on. You've probably had the experience of sitting in a, um, a room when the fridge goes off and you notice not the sound of the fridge but suddenly that the fridge has stopped making the noise and you probably there's a slight sense of relaxing because at some level we're responding to it but we're not actually conscious of it anymore and we know that a sound that's just steady after a while, we stop hearing it. Likewise, you've probably gone into a room that smelt a little musty on occasion. And after, you know, at first it's a bit like, hmm. And then after a little while, we stop noticing the smell. But if someone else walks in, they'll smell it straight away. It's like we don't notice a sustained sensory input unless it's really, really strong and intense. If it's quiet or gentle, we just at some point seem to tune it out. And this was of interest to scientists uh, who were wondering how this works. And what was observed is that although that happens with range of experiences, it doesn't seem to happen with visual experience. Well, we, no one generally reports looking at something and after a while it disappears. And uh, so some scientists did an experiment where they mounted a... Um, they put a contact lens on someone's eye and they wired it up to a, to a projector. Now, I had understood this experiment in one way and I was recently told by a, a professor of psychology who was on a retreat I taught in New Zealand that I'd slightly understood it, I'd understood it wrongly, but um, the way it worked apparently was there was a, some kind of magnet magnets in the contact lens that were able to track the movement of the eyeball because the eye keeps moving. The eye is shimmering very, very fast, you know. I don't know if it's hundreds or thousands of times a second, but it's a lot. It's just shimmering along there. And what that means is that the image on the back of the eyeball keeps moving. So you are never getting a constant image. Our mind stabilizes the image because it knows things aren't shaking, mostly. 
just the same way it inverts them. You know how our mind inverts the image, turns it the other way up, and if we get a bang on the head, sometimes it all looks shaky. That's because it is. And we've just, our mind isn't stabilizing it. But anyway, that's kind of by the by for this. Because the thing was, they put, they had a way of projecting an image so that it would move parallel to the eye. So what meant, that meant was that the image coming into the eye was steady. It was no longer moving against the, the light receptors in the back of the retina. And what people reported was after looking at this image for a little while that was moving with their eye, it disappeared. And what that suggests is that our sensory equipment is unable to register something that doesn't change. So when we speak of the fact that all things change, and all things do change, all experience that we encounter, anything that we could take hold of is subject to that. That doesn't encompass the totality, or potentially doesn't encompass the totality of what life may reveal. There is a reality. You are that reality. When we don't take hold of changing experience, when we're less invested in it, when we're not focusing on it, when we're not seeking to find meaning or satisfaction or a definition of who we are through the experiences that are coming, that are pouring through, that just keep unstoppably manifesting a sight and sound and smell and taste and touch and thought of concept and image. When we're not identifying with all of that, we can open to, we can sense, we can become, it seems, attuned or sensitized in a different way. It's like almost we have a organ of perception that we don't normally recognize or and we can't really understand and yet we can feel the effect of it within us in a certain kind of capacity to recognize to know to understand in a way that is not of the ordinary or the familiar order When we rest, when we are still, when we sit in the silence, taking hold of nothing that comes, that moves, that passes through the field of our experience, and yet are really wholeheartedly there nonetheless, really open, really interested, and yet not taking hold of anything. 
there's a way in which we can begin to sense something that's true. And really, this capacity we have to sense, to know, to recognize that which is true is not something that's operating within our familiar sensory equipment, including our mind as we would normally understand it. And in the Dharma teachings, the mind is recognized as one of the six senses or the sense door of the mind that receives thoughts and images as the eye receives colors and sights, images and forms, and the ear sounds. So it's like there's something or there's a, a truth that we can't see directly by looking at it. And yet we can recognize it. And the, the tendency we have is to notice what sort of comes towards us. Notice what stands out to us in all situations. And there's a really good reason for that because things that are going to eat us tend to come towards us. And things that we might want to eat or possibly sort of engage with in some other interesting way, um, we tend to have to go towards them in general. Occasionally we're fortunate and they come towards us, but it's not guaranteed. And so at a basic biological level, we're wired up really efficiently and effectively to primarily respond to those things that are coming towards us or that we can go towards. Because that's how you keep, it's a, how you get one of these bodies, but it's how you keep one going and the species and all of that. So we tend to notice what comes forward or what stands out and we don't necessarily notice the background. Just as when we look up in the sky in the night, you know, what we tend to often see are the, the constellations and we can, you know, form the images that they create, you know, the, the Big Dipper or the, I don't know what other ones you have over here. Um, in New Zealand, in the Southern Hemisphere, with the Scorpio is this amazing constellation. That, sorry, there's nothing in the north to compare with it, I'm afraid. You, you have to go south to see it. It really isn't like something you have to imagine. Well, of course you do, to see the scorpion. It really is there with its, you know, full detail and glory. Um, but at the same time, of course, it's just a bunch of dots in the sky. And you look up and you say, wow, Scorpio's rising. But mostly what's out there is a whole lot of nothing a whole lot of inky blackness. And yet that's not what we tend to see. We tend to see the things that appear in it. Because that's the way our mind and our whole life seems to be oriented, is towards things, towards things. And there's no shortage of things to get interested in, excited by, disappointed by. So it's also a bit like watching a movie. You've all been to movies, down to the theatre for some entertainment. It's a very popular form of activity because it quite precisely replicates what goes on inside our heads most of the time. (laughs) But sort of very crafty business people have worked out that they can get us to pay for the same thing. (laughs) And we like to think we're smart, but anyway. (laughs) 
When we go to a movie theater, what happens? We sit down in a quiet, dark room. A bunch of other people are doing much the same. And there's a white screen at the far end of the room. And onto that screen are projected, is projected some light. So some colors are reflected back to us from it. And some machines called speakers are put in the sides of the room that move in the air and vibrate sounds, make sounds. And what happens for us is we're sitting in the theater and this story starts to unfold. There's these, these characters that appear. They're, basically, it's a bunch of colors. It's a bunch of colors over here and they're the good colors. And a bunch of colors over there, they're the bad colors. And we know that you know the good colors have got to be careful because the bad colors are trying to get them. And, and we can get really wrapped up in this thing. If someone points out to us, hey, it's just a bunch of colors, we say, shut up. <laughs> I paid money to watch these colors. You know, so we're actually really into this thing. And the, you know, obviously in the end, the good colors, you know, win over the bad colors and find some cute looking colors to go off with. And, <laughs> you know, we know the story. But what's happening is there's a bunch of color being reflected to our eyes by a screen. And we can't see the screen. We can only see the colors because the screen is there reflecting them back to us. That's the only way we can see them. If it wasn't there, they'd just go whizzing off into space. Be really not entertaining and we want our money back. And yet we can't see the screen. They're very careful to make sure that the picture colors the whole screen. Because if you can see the screen, you're going to realize, I'm looking at a screen. It's a bunch of colors moving around. How boring. No one's going to pay money for that. But what's going on here isn't that different. Because we're so used to seeing what seems to stand out, we don't realize that actually the most substantial thing going on is the screen. The colors are ephemeral, changing, moving, flickering. But the screen is just there. It doesn't move. It doesn't change. It simply has the capacity to reflect back to us the light. So when we stop being so concerned with the story, whether it be a romantic comedy or a tragedy or some intriguing thriller, and we probably have all had those kind of storylines at different times in our lives. But when we're not so concerned with the story, we can start to sense that there's something underlying all of this. Not actually something, but equally not nothing. That there is something that we resonate to, that we could call truth. That we could also say unifies all things. And it's not something that we can recognize or encounter directly through the senses, the physical senses or the mind.
but that there's a way in which we resonate with it. There's a, a recognition that takes place in the encounter with life when we're not seeking from that which we experience to create, to reinforce, to build up an identity or a story of who we are and defend it against all the things that will inevitably make it impossible to sustain. When we're not doing that, there is something fresh, something new, something completely original, and yet equally familiar. Do we start to sense? Do we can feel the touch of And it seems like a contradiction that something completely new could be familiar. Something completely fresh could be recognized by us. And yet that's the mark of truth. It's familiar and it's new. And when we have insights, and we do, even in little insights, there, there's something about them where we just notice, oh, that's right. It's like, I knew that. And yet at the same time we realize we're really knowing it for the first time in that moment. And I knew it already. It's not like it's a surprise, and yet it's completely new. How can that be? Our mind can't really make sense of that. It should either be new or familiar, not both. So there's this simple experience of being here, going nowhere, doing nothing, achieving and attaining nothing of significance, which is a disappointment at one level and a remarkable good fortune at another. It was actually, I think, Trungpa who said, uh, enlightenment is a disappointment for the ego. It's like we are here to get something for me and that isn't what's on offer. But that isn't to say there's nothing on offer, just not that. It's like what is that sense in the stillness when we can feel something but we can't put our finger on anything? What is that? In the silence, when we, when the silence starts to have a texture to it, that is just seems so much more than the absence of noise. So we can feel it, and we, it's almost like we're bathing in the silence. And like, you know, you try and explain that to someone. I was bathing in the silence. It's like, <laughs> you know, are you okay? You've been meditating or something, and yet. And yet it happens. We feel it. Not being able to put our finger on it doesn't mean we should be discounting the way in which we are touched, moved, affected by the immediacy, by the 
nakedness of just being here, of just meeting this that is. And while life pours in and through, as it does unstoppably, there's also this stillness, it seems, through which it pours, we could say. Or we could equally say it the other way around. But The journey of awakening, the spiritual journey, is a journey of return. A return to that which we have not left and yet perhaps have somehow remarkably managed to forget. When we stop looking for something else, we start looking, when we stop seeking, there's a way in which the ending of that momentum of looking for reveals something to us. The end of the momentum itself that we speak of in Dharma teachings as grasping, as wanting, as craving, as, and this is the basis of suffering. The ending of that momentum. A lot of what we do here is we learn to see the momentum. We learn to see how it pulls, how it pushes, how we get drawn out of the sense of immediacy, of presence, of connection, of openness. We get drawn out and somehow lose contact with this simple immediacy and directness and to just come back, to reconnect again and again. And yet as that starts to almost, how to say it, acquire a certain weightiness to it, the sense of being here-ness, the sense of coming backness, the reconnecting, the returning, it seems, there's a certain weightiness, almost a gravitas that it starts to have for us, that we feel quite a different pull. And it's not a pull that's taking us out or away or towards something, but it actually is a pull that's much more like somehow falling back or dissolving back or settling back, again, into where we are, not into somewhere else, not onto something else, but into where we are. And so, although it's a settling back and it appears to be a movement, it actually isn't a movement to somewhere else. It's a movement to here. Which doesn't make sense again. How can you move to here? And yet, that's as good a way to try and describe it as any. Rumi spoke of it like this. He said, 
I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, knocking on a door. It opens. I've been knocking from the inside. The realization of what is most true. The understanding that these teachings point us towards is the realization of that which is the deepest nature of all things, the awakened nature of all things, of which and in which we participate. And yet which it seems we lose contact with through the fixation on taking hold of, grasping, and trying to construct from our experience a self-definition. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you realize this, you will see that you are nothing. No thing. To see that we are no thing, that nothing that comes to us can define what is most true. Nothing that arises can encapsulate or delineate the deepest truth of our existence, of our life, of what it means to be conscious. And so, to take no thing to be what we are, to see that we are nothing, This is the basis of freedom. This is what liberates the heart from the struggle with experience that appears to define us, that appears to constrain and limit and bind us. To see that we are not this, without somehow trying to define ourselves in some other way. Nothing that comes can do that. And when we relinquish that, abandon that compulsion, that habit, that pattern and tendency to take hold of seeking for satisfaction, seeking for definition, because the ultimate satisfaction we're seeking is a satisfactory self-definition. And <sighs> it doesn't work, does it? When we're not seeking that, there's a way in which we are unbound by the things that have appeared to bind us. We're not tied anymore. And ultimately, what is true and most true is revealed 
to be outside of and not subject to the realms of birth and death. This body-mind process comes into existence and comes to an end, inevitably, and yet the deepest truth that we can as human beings understand is not bound to this and yet nor is it apart from it. Not bound to that which is born and dies and yet not apart from that which is born and dies. To realize no thingness. This is freedom. When you realize this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. When we see that we are not any particular, when we start to see the illusion as being just that, when we start to see that we are not definable by any particularity, and therefore we are not distinguishable from any other particularity in any ultimate sense, when we're not any one thing, we are inevitably and unstoppably part of all things, participant in everything. And in the underlying nature of all things too. And the underlying truth that all things reveal. And that reveals all things. To be part of life rather than apart from it. To understand that we are connected so profoundly, so deeply, so indivisibly to all things is to see a truth that we cannot see when we see things as separate or distinct. I'd like to read a piece from uh, Black Elk, a Native American, a holy man of the Ogala Sioux. He described an experience. In his book, Black Elk Speaks, he said, And then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and round about beneath me was the whole hoop of the world. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw that the sacred hoop of my people was one of many hoops, that made one circle, wide as daylight and as starlight. 
And in the centre grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. Holiness. This word we use and Maybe we're not comfortable with it from its sometimes unfortunate associations. But the word we often have used to denote that which is not bound to and by the world has the same root as wholeness and whole and healing, in fact. The non-dividedness of things reveals the spiritual dimension and truth of things. The non-separateness of things. Is what we realize when we see that we are nothing. We're so afraid of being nothing because it seems like annihilation. We're so desperately trying to be something or someone because we fear what not being someone will be. And yet ultimately releasing that sense of who we imagine ourselves to be is to discover ourselves as equally everything, as nothing. Being nothing, you are everything. And in that, the natural, inevitable, and unstoppable relationship with life is that of caring for it all, including the totality of it. Others, ourselves, that near and that far. All of it is the natural and inevitable territory of kindness, of care, of compassion when we don't hold one part separate from another, when we see through the appearance of the distinctions that suggest it's me sitting over here and you sitting over there, and that this body appears to stop, and that body appears to start, and that body there appears to start, and it seems like there's an empty space in between. Because that's what it looks like, doesn't it? To our eyes and to our habitual mind. And when we live like that, of course, then there's a certain number of things in this world that I care for and a certain number of things or people that I don't. And therein is the basis of incredible conflict and suffering. When we sit and when we're still, when we allow ourselves to deeply contact what is true, and this is what we're doing, learning to do here more and more. What we see that within the very core of what it means to be alive is a profound and deep caring that is innate, that is intrinsic, that is easily buried or layered over by reactivity, by fear, by neediness and contraction in such a way as it becomes bound and limited and constrained. But we feel a sense of painfulness around that constrainedness. There's a, there's a clear recognition when we look within that this 
there's a wish for that limitedness, that constraint around our heart's capacity to love and care for and be sensitive to others and to all things and to ourselves because sometimes we become cut off and disconnected or divided and oppositional from ourselves because of the habit and the way we conceive and imagine. And there's this, this sense of and we're pulled towards finding the way for the heart to be free from that limitedness, that constrainedness, whether it's a limitation towards ourself or limitation towards other or both. There's a, there's, a, there's a natural calling and pull we recognize, we encounter. And it's really the, the movement of love, of care, that is there that is there but is not necessarily with wisdom. And so becomes distorted in its expression by being made available here but not there, to this but not that, to me but not you, or to you but not me, or this part of me and not that part of me. And that boundary, that division, that separating out of this from that, based on what we've decided is good and bad. Concepts that have no ultimate truth to them. That when we see through the boundary, when we see through the separateness, when we start to sense and recognize for ourselves the that the everythingness of what is true, of what we could say we are, that it, what is most true encompasses everything, nothing left out. When we see that, when we start to understand that, the love that is very much at the heart of the awakened truth of life, the love and compassion is naturally boundless naturally without constraint and just moves as appropriate because there's nothing to stop it doing that just as sunlight floods into the sky and shines on whatever is there without picking or choosing it's just the nature of it it just flows in that way And it's like Shantideva, who spoke of this beautifully. He, he said, just as we look at these limbs as part of this body, could we not see all beings as simply limbs of embodied life? He said, when acting on behalf of others, no amazement arises in me. Just as when feeding myself, I expect nothing else in return. It's like it's already complete when we're not doing it for something else or someone else. Because that separation is no longer what we're referring that appearance of separation is no longer what we're referring to. And it's like he went on to say, it's like it's just like the hand 
when the foot is sore, the hand rubs the foot. It's just, what happens? And you know, I kind of extrapolate from that. It's, it's like, of course, it's not like the hand has to think, wow, the foot hurts, you know? I'm going to rub it. It's just obviously natural that the hand responds to the foot. Because, of course, we say hand, we say foot. But where is the hand separate from the foot? Can you show me the part of my body or your body where the hand is distinguished from the foot, apart from some idea in my head that says it stops here? Or here? But when I feel my body, the hand goes all the way to the foot. It really does. And sometimes the foot hurts, the hand rubs it. Other times the hand gets to hang out in the pocket while the foot has to schlep it around. <laughs> and the hand doesn't think, you know, I'm the great compassionate Mother Teresa of hands when it rubs the foot. And the foot doesn't say, wow, you know, I'm really noble carrying that hand around all this time. It's just what happens. And so we see, it's so obvious in a body how... My mind has drawn a line that says this is the hand because it has a different function than the foot, and a different appearance. Sure, it's got a different function. Sure, it's got a different appearance. Sure, you and I have different appearances. Perhaps in some ways different functions, or we could say more maybe usefully different journeys. But when we sit back from that appearance, is it really so? that we are separate when we feel life moving through us, when we feel the stillness that we resonate with together and the silence that can wash around us and through us. Is it really so that we are separate and that the, the love and the care do we feel for that which we are connected to needs to be held back from anything at all? Being nothing, you are everything. That is all. That is all. Just simple. Ordinary, the way things are, just that is all. It's like nothing special here. Nothing to make too much of a song and dance about. It's so easy to feel that our journey is the center of the universe. Our life and our journey is what it all turns on. And it does and it doesn't in the end. There's a great relief when we don't have to be at the center of it all, when it doesn't have to be spe special or remarkable or notable, but just this is what it is. The suchness of things, the suchness of life, it's like this. Just this. You live in appearance. Sorry, to remember it right. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. 
There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. May we all, in our practice and in our lives, come to rest where we are. To know deeply in our hearts the truth that is awake within us and around us. And to Know too the boundless compassion that life has for itself. No thing left out. For our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.